This morning we're in Mark's Gospel at the beginning of chapter 12. So I'd invite you to turn there. It's on page 717 if you're using the Pew Bibles. There's a parable here this morning that follows directly after the controversy about Jesus' authority that came up at the end of chapter 11. Matthew and Luke also have this parable in the same place. This is likely Tuesday of Holy Week. We understand that the controversy around the temple and all that Jesus has been doing has heightened the tension between him and the religious establishment to the point to where they really perceive him to be a great threat to everything that's important to them. In every way, Jesus is a threat to the religious establishment. We've been seeing this over the last few weeks as we've been looking at these sections of Mark's gospel. The issue of authority was raised explicitly in the passage last week. By what authority, they said, do you, Jesus, have the... Have the um, why are you doing these things? Who gave you the power and the authority to do this? And Jesus didn't answer their question, if you remember. But as we look at our parable today, we'll find the answer. We'll see that through the story, through the parable, Jesus is answering that question. He's speaking to his authority, his unique authority, different than the prophets, the authority of the Son as the Messiah. So look with me, Mark 12. Um, This is sometimes called the parable of the wicked tenants. I prefer the parable of the gracious owner and his son. Mark's testimony is here for us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Read with me. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. He rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat. Others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying... They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous. In our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. God's word for us this morning. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word and how it gives us life and how it gives us light and how it gives us food and how it's what we need. So now, as we interact with it, we pray that you would speak to us that my words would be your words to to all of us, and that our hearts would be changed. And uh, we pray for your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark begins by saying here, in the midst of this great tension and debate, Jesus begins to speak in parables. We have one recorded here that's also recorded in Matthew and Luke. Matthew also gives us two others that were told in the same setting at the same time, that Jesus is speaking 
with the Pharisees. I think maybe he was doing that to diffuse the tension in a way, but by the time we get to the end of the parable, we see he hasn't diffused anything at all. The parable begins with a picture that was meaningful to Jesus' audience. Verse 1. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. Listen to Isaiah chapter 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. This passage in Isaiah 5 is one of the most famous parables of the Old Testament. So many in Jesus' audience would have knew known it, of course. They would have known it instinctively. When Jesus starts talking about a vineyard, they would have thought of the vineyard in Isaiah 5. How does that story continue? Verse 2 of Isaiah 5, Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard that I've done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now, I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. And briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah and the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. The prophet Isaiah's parable is this image of judgment upon Israel and Judah. Because their grapes were bad. Because bloodshed and oppression were the produce of their vineyard. Not long after Isaiah's prophecy, of course, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. And this prophecy was fulfilled. That the inhabitants were taken into captivity and their fields were uncultivated and destroyed. The story spoke to a painful part of Israel's history. But Jesus picks up that parable and he adapts it. He uses it in his day, in his context, and he changes it, of course... He puts himself in the middle. He makes this story of Israel's history part of the story of his history that's unfolding right before them. The parable begins with a a very realistic situation. The owner leaves some tenant farmers in charge of his vineyard, and he goes away. This was something of a common practice in that day. And now looking again at verse 2. At harvest time... He sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them, and they struck this man on the head, and they treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, and others they killed. There are many records from around this time of disputes uh, between um, the uh, tenants... And owners of land in ancient Israel or in Israel in Jesus' day. 
And there were division of prophets, and there were laws, of course, about, about protection for the owner, protection for the tenants. Violence occasionally erupted over these kinds of disputes. But Jesus is intensifying the action here, right? From merely casting out, to treating shamefully, striking on the head, to outright killing the servants sent from the owner. So in the parable, the owner has a big problem, right? He has two big problems, really. He isn't getting any return on his investment, and his servants are being killed and treated horribly. This would have angered the owner, right? Infuriated him. It's terribly unjust. It's defiant rebellion. It's complete disregard for the owner and tenant agreement that was the foundation of their relationship. The killing of the servants would have gone beyond anyone's expectation of what actually would have happened in Jesus' day between owners and tenants. And so as Jesus' parables often do, they highlight, uh, they take a realistic situation and they make it unrealistic. Right? Jesus ratchets up the tension or the the drama in the story uh, such that the people could understand, but also in a way that's surprising. What's the point? Jesus is giving a sketch of the history of Israel, that God sent his prophets to his people. We read about it all through the Old Testament, that some prophets received a hearing. They were recognized as coming from God. The people repented at their word. The people turned back to God. We see examples of that, of course. But we see many examples of the opposite. Of course, when God's prophets' words were ignored and the people treated them terribly. Matthew... uh, Jesus says in Matthew 23, at the end of this passage of the woes about the Pharisees, he said, Therefore I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. I tell you the truth, all of this will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together. But you were not willing. Jesus is saying this parable is happening right now. Jesus is saying the story of the Old Testament has brought us to this climax and this point of history. Turning back to the parable, the owner is in this dilemma. What should he do? Parables of Jesus are often structured in such a way that the middle is the most important point. The parable turns on what happens right in the middle, and usually at this climactic point, there's some kind of dialogue. The prodigal son, the older brother, both of them have speeches right at that point in the middle of the story. The compassionate employer in Matthew 20 makes a speech at this point. So here we have the speech of the owner. Verse 6. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. The owner has just one last resort, just one left that he could send. The servants are hired hands or even slaves. But the son is the heir. The son has the right to reclaim the property from the rebels. The son uh, can assert the authority of the owner. The son has the force of law behind him in order to right this great injustice. What does the owner do with his righteous anger, right? He's angry, righteously, that's been generated by this great injustice. 
How will the owner reclaim what is his from the enemies who have rebelled against him and treated him shamefully? The parable has many similarities to the parable of the great banquet in Luke 14. Remember that when the man invited many people to his banquet and as it approached, they started making excuses, which were slap in the face kinds of insults, right? No, I can't come. I just bought a piece of land, right? So what does the owner of the banquet do? What does he do with his righteous anger? We might expect the use of force. We might expect that the owner would respond with furiousness. But the son comes unarmed. No militia, no army, no bodyguards. Why? Why does the owner take this action? Why does the owner do this? What does he say? He says, they will respect my son. Luke adds the word perhaps. The key word here is this idea of respect, which is related in Jesus' day and the culture, of course, to the concepts of shame and honor. In different forms, this Greek word can mean to turn around or to turn about. It can also mean to put to shame. And it can also mean something related to respect. So, there's, so it has this sort of wide semantic range. And, and we can see how they relate together. Respect relates to shame and honor in the culture of Jesus' day particularly. You honor those whom you respect. You turn away in shame when you have offended those whom you respect. The bigger picture sense of it is this. Perhaps these rebels will turn away. Perhaps these rebels will feel ashamed of their bad behavior when I send my son. In sending the son, he's sending the son who has authority. He has all the authority of the owner. But he's coming in humility and in vulnerability. And so the owner is doing something no owner would ever do. Right? This is why it's a parable of Jesus. It's so unexpected. He's reprocessed his righteous anger and transformed it into grace. The host of the banquet, who was insulted by all of those people who wouldn't come, he turned his anger into grace by what did he do? He went out and he invited others from the streets and the alleys, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, come in anyway. Right? The owner doesn't respond with violence that would have been perfectly justified. He does not, at this point, exact justice. Instead, he offers a final invitation, the last option, at great risk and potential cost to himself. This week I read a story about King Hussein of Jordan who at the time of his death in 1999 had ruled over Jordan for 46 years. He had seen his country through many decades of turmoil, many conflicts related to the existence of the state of Israel and many related wars. He was much beloved in his country, and he had gained the respect of many world leaders for his role in seeking peace at different stages along the way. Of course, history is very complicated, but seeking peace for the region. He was one of the first... Uh, leaders of Arab nations to recognize the existence of Israel and was awfully sharp and criticized by other Arab leaders for his moderate stance along the way. There are many, you know, in the case of of someone famous, uh, a king who's ruled for a long time, there are many stories that develop about the things that they did. Some of them probably were legendary. 
This one is reported to be a true story. In the early 1980s, a group of about 75 men in the Jordanian army held a secret meeting to plot the overthrow of his government. It happened in a nearby barracks. The king's security forces learned of it, and they asked for permission to surround this barracks and arrest those men who were plotting against the king. But the king instead gave orders for a small helicopter to be brought. He got in, and he instructed his pilot to land on the roof of the barracks, and he said, if you hear gunshots, fly away at once without me. The king descended into the very room of the meeting, unarmed, and he spoke to the rebels. What I read quoted him as saying this. Of course, I don't know if there was someone transcribing, but this is the gist of it. Gentlemen, it's come to my attention that you are meeting here tonight to finalize your plans to overthrow the government, take over the country, and install a military dictator. If you do this, the army will break apart and the country will be plunged into civil war. Tens of thousands of people will die. There's no need for this. Here I am. Kill me and proceed. That way, only one man will die. What do you think happened? Reportedly, the rebels, to a man, rushed forward to pledge their loyalty to the king for life. The sense of honor of the rebels was restored by the action of the king. He diffused their desire to rebel, replacing it with a newfound sense or renewed sense of loyalty as they saw that his response to their plotting of violence against him was not violence, but a desire for peace and humility and vulnerability. In this parable, that seems to be something of the owner's hope, right? My tenants, when they recognize that this act of authority coming in vulnerability, will be stirred to repentance. They'll be stirred to renewed loyalty and faithfulness. Right? This is, so this is off the charts. This is the most unusual choice. ...that an owner would make or that a king would make. Righteous anger transformed into an opportunity for grace. Sadly, in the parable, the response of the tenants... ...was not the response of the Jordanian rebels in verse 7. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. This is the greatest rebellion... Betrays the end game for the tenants. They want to keep the property at all costs. Perhaps they think the owner has died and that's why he sent the son. And so in killing the son, they can get the property. There was this idea in that culture, the way property laws work, that if you lived in a place and farmed it for long enough, then eventually it would become yours. They would do this, of course, so that owners couldn't you know, keep tenants farming forever and mistreat them. But these people didn't see themselves as tenants any longer. They would be satisfied with nothing less than being the owner. So again, the owner is faced with a crisis. What will he do? For the second time, in an even greater fashion, his anger would have been stirred. And the parable demands a conclusion. Verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard others 
In Mark's account, Jesus poses the question and he also answers it. If you read the different accounts, of, I mean, of course, there were lots of witnesses to these things. They, we don't have to read them against each other and think that they disagree. Right? All of this probably was happening at the same time. And the gospel writers record it faithfully. Luke records the crowd's horror at the prospect of Jesus' answer. Matthew records that the religious leaders answered the parable. That Jesus posed the question and they answered it. They said, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at its harvest time. This is like one of the the, uh, Nathan and David, you are the man kind of scene, isn't it? The religious leaders of the day have pronounced the just judgment upon themselves. In a terrifying kind of way. According to Matthew's account, Jesus continues in verse 10. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. What do we learn from the parable? First, judgment has been delayed, but is now coming and will fall upon the wicked tenants. Judgment will not be ignored. Justice will not be ignored forever. The killing of the servants and the son and the rebellion against the owner will not go unpunished. The owner's nobility and grace was extended one climactic and final time in the sending of the son. The rejection of the son means that grace does not remain available for the tenants. The rejection of the son means that grace does not remain available for the tenants. The quotation from Psalm 118 is rich. There will be a reversal of fortunes in the plan of God. The one who is rejected will prove to be the greatest one. And this passage was of great importance to the New Testament writers. It's quoted in Acts. It's quoted in 1 Peter. They applied it to Jesus. And they saw this idea that the humility of the son brings him to glory. And the highest place at the right hand of the Father. The second thing we see, the parable sums up, the vineyard will be given to others. The leadership will change hands. We have to keep in mind that Jesus wasn't pronouncing judgment upon the vineyard itself. In Isaiah, we saw that that was the judgment. The the vines were producing wild grapes, and so the vineyard would be punished. But in this, you know, Jesus is adapting the parable. The judgment is falling upon the tenants of the vineyard, the religious leaders of the house of Israel. And so these are some of the themes that we've seen the last few weeks. Judgment and grace, a call to repentance in the midst of the threat of justice, a terrible mismanagement and oppression of God's people by the religious leaders of the day. So these are the same themes that we've seen, but how does the parable take it further? We see the action of the sun. And coming into a much sharper focus, right? I don't know about you, but this parable speaks to me in a different way. To see the parable and consider the imagery. And think about the characters involved and what would they have done. The imagery of the sun walking unarmed into a world that's vainly plotting a coup against his father. What about for us today? How does this speak to us? It challenges us. I invite you to, first, to a fresh encounter with this son. This is an otherworldly character. This is the king, and the son 
of the king, the Messiah, who certainly doesn't do whatever would have been expected. He was sent into a hostile world to demonstrate the final and ultimate act of grace, the great redemptive act of God, the one that the whole Old Testament was pointing to. No one else could be sent so that righteous anger could be transformed into grace. Righteous anger was aimed at me. It was aimed at you. And in the coming of the Son, that righteous anger was transformed into an offer of grace extended to me and extended to you. We, like the tenants, have wanted to be the owner, not the renter. We've longed for a life of God on our own terms. We've rebelled. We've not wanted to hear the message of the prophets or the Son. We're sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, broken by the fall, without hope, except that the owner of all things would have mercy, would have mercy on the very tenants that have ruined his vineyard. For all who believe, this parable gives us a picture of how it's even possible that we could respond with repentance, right? It's not the violence of God that invites us to repentance. It's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance and faith. The unarmed incarnation, the baby in a manger vulnerability, restraining all the authority. He has all the authority. He's restraining it and submitting all the way to the cross. Now that is power, isn't it? Sending the army and crushing the tenants is one kind of power, but does that produce repentance? Paul tells us that it's the riches of the kindness and the tolerance and the patience of God that's at work within our hearts that brings us to repentance and faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. This parable gives us a picture of how that's possible, doesn't it? Even more, the kindness of God doesn't just have power when we first come to believe. How do we have power to live the Christian life? What keeps us going and moving forward in holiness and Christ-likeness? It's also the grace of God. Paul tells us in Titus 2, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. What does it do? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what's good. It's an amazing gospel dynamic, isn't it? That the unarmed coming of the Son would so change us that we would want to follow him. If you need help this week to say no to greed, lust, gossip, selfishness, bitterness, doubt, and all the rest, then consider this picture of the sun coming to the vineyard and extending grace to you. The grace that helps you resist those things because you really want something better. You really want to follow him. It's the grace that helps us to stand down and renounce any claims of ownership, doesn't it? We are just tenant farmers. 
We're call, he calls us to work faithfully. He calls us to trust him for fruit. He calls us to give him all of the proceeds, which is the glory, isn't it, to him. Paul urges us to consider him as well, not just for the present moment, but also looking forward with the expectation that the Son will come again to return to his vineyard, redeem his people, and make it perfect forever. If you find yourself this week plotting in a room when the king walks in, don't hide, confess, and repent before him. In this act, the king was offering amnesty. Isn't that unbelievable? To all who repented and pledged their loyalty again to him. He's offering them amnesty. He's not holding against it. Holding it against them that they were plotting against him. In the same way, God doesn't keep a record of our sins. They've been taken away and nailed to the cross. It's unbelievable, isn't it? So, this week, remember this parable? Let it rattle around in your brain. Think about it. What is it like that there is this owner and this son who is extending this kind of grace to the world? Think about anger transformed to grace. How does that happen? How can that happen in your life, too? As we, of course, get angry at one another, how can we transform our anger that may be righteous, it may not be righteous, but it may be righteous, How can we transform it into grace towards one another as well? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning for a picture of just what it, how, an amazing picture of how much you love us. Jesus, an amazing picture of what it means that you have come into our world in a subversive and powerful way to change the lives of your people, to transform us. And we want to give you the glory and praise. We pray that you would make us fruitful. We pray, Lord, that you would work these things more deeply in our lives this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.